You're listening to episode 35. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Sarah Beth Snell about improving the flow of clinic because we can do better. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. I have today a very special guest. We've gotten to know each other um, a lot over the last, like, I don't know, one or two years now. Um, this is Dr. Sarah Beth Snell. She is a surgical oncologist now primarily doing breast surgery. But in our conversations, I've discovered she has a superpower that I want to know more about, and I'm sure you all do as well. And she and I are going today to talk about clinic flow. This is not something we learn in residency. It's something we learn oftentimes by getting frustrated and doing it wrong. However, we can share some insights that I think that are going to help. And But first, though, Dr. Snell, please introduce yourself. Tell us more about yourself. Hello. Good morning. I am Dr. Snell. I have been in practice for about 17 years, trained at the University of Louisville for residency and then Miami in surgical oncology. Started out doing general and surgical oncology for about five years and then transitioned to breast-only practice in St. Louis. I was there for 11 years and have recently relocated to Chattanooga, Tennessee, to um, University Surgical Associates to lead their breast program. Um, I, as you stated before, was not taught really how to run an office, um, specifically the flow of clinic. We all did free clinic and training and patients would show up randomly and you never know what you were going to get and those sort of things. I did do some private clinic at my fellowship and did notice how they did things and some things that were very smooth and some things that were not smooth and how we could better do patient flow when we got out into private practice. When I transitioned to breast only, I was very lucky to have a good team of radiologists and pathologists at um, St. Anthony's Medical Center in St. Louis that helped me with my vision on how clinics should flow. The most important thing I think that I can say about anything about clinic flow is make sure you have a team that believes in what you believe in. Isn't that Um, the truth? Yes. That is the one thing that I've learned now after two new jobs is sometimes it takes a while to get the team on board with your vision. However, after they see how happy the patients are and how things can go specifically for breast cancer, but for all surgery patients, I do believe that they will come around to your side of thinking and see how efficient it becomes in the office. I love this point that you bring up. And this is so important is that when you go to a new job, you know, the irony is a lot of times they're asking you to come to this new job because you have something to offer. And so therefore we think it's really welcome to offer our changes. And sometimes it is not very welcome. So take us through now that you've had a couple uh, job changes now, what are the best practices for in general, introducing a new concept of changing the way things may go. So as we talked before, I thought because we're surgeons and scientists that I could come in and show them the data 
hey, I had the patient satisfaction award for the entire Mercy East system in February of 2020. And that's over 200 practices and we can do this. And oh, I was able to be in the 90th to 95th percentile of RVUs by a single provider and patients were still happy even though we were so busy. And so I thought I could present all this data to show them how great it was. And everybody like, oh yeah, I'm going to do it. It sounds great. Let's change everything we're doing. And now we're going to do it your way. And da, da, da. But that's not really how it works. <laughs> no. So how it really works is you just have to model the system and stay true to your system. And then they start hearing feedback from patients about how much they like it or feedback from the other specialists about how much happier the patients are when they get there and how much more well-prepared the patients are when they get there. And then they slowly start to come around. And in all honesty, sometimes that involves staff turnover, but you also then see the other physicians in your practice. If you are a multi-physician practice that see also, oh, her patients are happier. Her patients are out of there sooner. Her patients are more well-informed. They don't get as many phone calls oh, maybe we should start to do it this way. So really, it also just takes time. I agree. And I think that's a great point is that, you know, you are entering into an established system. Now they may be doing this in a way that are inefficient and certainly have some room to go, but it's understanding that they're going to have their own opinions about your process and they haven't quite bought into it yet. Even if you show them all the evidence, like you said, that, you know, entering into an established system is going to take a little bit of time and Time and effort and sometimes turnover, just like you said. I like the way you put that. Um, So take us through a little bit about, um, you know, maybe give us some ideas of how we're doing things wrong or what are some of the biggest pitfalls that you see people doing incorrectly? So the thing I currently hear from staff that haven't quite yet decided that flow can be better is, oh, I don't think the patient will like that. Or, well, you know, that's, that's maybe, that's more work on the front end. But I think if you really stick to it, you will show that it's actually less work on the front end once you establish that pattern. So I think the pitfalls are number one, deciding what the patient will like without really asking the patient. Mm -hmm. And number two, knowing that something's going to fail without giving it a shot. And that's really life in anything, right? <laughs> like that's everything in our life. But but trying something new or different, Dr. Kleinberg at the American Society of Breast Surgeons this year talked about thinking outside the box. You really have to think outside the box because we've done it like this for so long. So for example, you know, practices a few years ago are like, we're going to start Saturday appointments and we're going to start Saturday mammograms. And did it, it, why would we never have done that? Because most working women that need appointments with physicians work from eight to five. So when are they going to come get their physical or when are they going to come get their mammogram or when are they going to, you know, so this, this established, well, I can't work past three because I work in a physician's office had to change just like banks change. Just like you used to not be able to buy gas on Sunday. Remember that? Like I am that old. You couldn't buy gas on Sunday. So you had to plan. Now you can't imagine not being able to go to target on Sunday and get your stuff. Right. Um, so we in healthcare had to adapt to those changes as well. And just because we think that's how we've always done it doesn't mean we should continue to do it that way. 
Yeah. Oh, I think that's a, that's a big one is like, this is the way it's always been done. And I think the one thing that's changed over time too, is that the, the patients just have to wait. And, you know, I think that the, um, the patient experience is so important, especially with competition is that, you know, really being, um, giving the patient the best timely experience is that, you know, sometimes they're going to have to wait for us, but I don't think that's the default. And I think that that model is not uh, a modern one of the, the patient is going to come to the doctor's office and, and they have to mark off half a day for the doctor's office. I think, you know, that's definitely something that um, I think has definitely changed over time. I have tried to impress on my staff that when the patient walks in, we really just engulf them. And we make sure everything's done for them so they don't waste their time calling other offices to get other appointments, right? Specifically for breast cancer, lots of patients have to have additional imaging after they've been diagnosed. They have to see the other consultants like medical and radiation oncology. So we make sure those things are done for them instead of the patient calling and try to get into that office. And just for example, being a patient, right? When we try to call and to get into an office. Like if you try to call dermatology, that's a six month wait to, Oh, I might have melanoma. That's a six month wait, or, you know, that's a long time. And so if we can help the patient navigate that system for them, they're eternally grateful. And I think the important thing about being a physician is we have these nurse navigators do that, but we need to make sure the patient understands as a physician, where their advocate to do that for them too not the system, not the healthcare system, not the nurse that called them from the breast center, but that's our job as the surgeons to also be that advocate to make sure they get timely, efficient, well, quality care. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's been lost upon us a little bit because like you said, we get busy and we get all those things and we're like, okay, you need to see these specialists and that as a breast surgeon, we have the opportunity to coordinate that for the patient so they don't have to worry about it. And they're already worried about so many other things than just that very first meeting that takes that away from them. Right. Now, a lot of times people feel kind of powerless in the system. So what was it about you where you discovered within yourself that you had the power to start making some changes in your environment? So I am not exactly sure where that came from. <laughs> uh, that may have came just from birth in my parents, right? With the way you're brought up. And I was a single uh, child and I was the only child of maybe not the most affluent parents um, who had to work the system her entire life to get there, right? As a female surgeon, we work the system in surgery, right? To get the same training. Uh, we worked the system to be treated equally on the floor by the nursing staff, by the respiratory therapists. We've worked that system our entire life. So whenever I went to a new job, it was just second nature to work this system to know that we can do better. And um, that really is my passion specifically for women and breast cancer is we can do better um, for their care. For example, for the follow-up patients, right? We at my previous position, and my goal is at this position, is we schedule their mammogram the same day as their appointment, and we see them right after. So it could truly be seamless care, right? To your point about taking off work, cancer care is expensive. 
they're already worried about paying their bills. They can't take more time off work. How long am I going to have to be off for my six month follow-up? I finally have started paying off all my bills and payment plans. And oh, now I have to take off work again one day to get a mammogram and one day to see you. And da-da. no, you'll get your mammogram at three o'clock and we'll see you at 3.30 or you can get your mammogram at four o'clock and we'll see you at 4.30. So maybe you leave work just an hour early mm-hmm. and those sort of things. So you really do try to work around those things for the patient. So again, you know, we always talk about patient satisfaction and that's associated with opioid, uh, increased opioid use, right? There's a study from California that showed family practice doctors that gave more opioids, got better patient satisfaction scores, and then got better money because their salary was tied to that. I don't think that patient satisfaction always has to come from opioid distribution, nor from just being nice, right? I would never say that patients leave a breast surgeon's office thinking how nice I am. I think they leave thinking I'm their advocate to make sure I'm going to get them through this and think about all their things, right? Their sexual side effects of the medications, their financial side effects of this, their time off work. How are they going to look afterwards? How are they going to feel afterwards? And the big thing then when they hear that first word is that they're going to be alive five years from now to see their kid graduate high school. Right. And it, I try to make sure they really understand where they stand in that process and if they truly are. And then if they're not, I try to make sure they know that too. Right. Because you never know what you might do if you think you're not going to be here in five years. Changes Absolutely. can be made in life. And so I think that's really what patient satisfaction is derived from. And when you see the five star rating, it's that I told them everything about their cancer and how they were going to do and how we were going to make sure they were going to be here in five years. Yeah. So it sounds like this is all driven just by, you know, your empowerment from being raised and then wanting to do better because we can do better for patients. And then realizing that you actually had the ability to be the patient's advocate. Um, So tell us how did that transition into how you changed the clinic flow? Um, What was it like, what is an ideal clinic flow for you now? So for a new patient, a new diagnosed breast cancer patient, the ideal clinic flow is we make all their appointments like we talked about. We give them an organizer, tell them here are your appointments. Then we see them back. We book their surgery. I have scripts of pre-printed. This is how your surgery day is going to go. And this is what is associated with um, the type of surgery you chose. And we do in-house drain teaching and how you're going to take care of yourself afterwards. Um, And then for follow-up patients, they're given their six month follow-up mammogram and appointment with me at their appointment. And they just, it's all pre-made. It's all pre-done for the patient. So they're very happy and understanding that that will be taken care of for them. Um, My ideal clinic flow is most new patients take about 30 minutes uh, for that discussion. If they need any, like I saw a BRCA patient yesterday and we did her biopsy and, but she came from GYN, but had not been set set up for her screening for her pelvic ultrasound, her CA-125, her pancreatic ultrasound, her colonoscopy, those sort of things. So we just went ahead and set those up for her because she's a captive audience, right? make sure all these other screening things get done. So my ideal clinic flow is to have your trusted consultant set up. So number one, we call Madonk and we get a new patient appointment literally within two minutes, same phone number to call Radonk because they're the same group. 
and have your trusted consultants in GY, GYN, GU, GYN, GI. So that way, when you just call, they immediately give you that appointment. Now, that takes some work on the front end, especially if you're at a new place, to make those connections and know those people that you can trust to run that office efficiently. And that requires having other physicians in the community to have that buy-in for that patient satisfaction to do like you, right? Not everyone's built like that. Not everyone wants to be that busy, nor wants their office to be that malleable or those sort of things. So, but there's always some people in the community that will work with you to get that done. I completely agree. You know, um, I do a lot of breast cancer as well. And, and the same thing is true. And I think probably the biggest, especially a new graduate or someone going to a new place, you have to build some of the time in to figure out what those systems are. And a lot of times when you go to a new place, you either accept that's how it is or feel like you can't change it. And, but I think the biggest thing that holds us back is making the time to do this. And, you know, I've been a huge advocate for growth days and, you know, I sometimes work on those, but those are days and these are like the administrative days. And, you know, the, the times that you really pause and say, this is not a day for patient care. This is a day for being the CEO of my medical practice. Um, and I know I've, I've created, you know, extensive checklists um, and things like that as well, but you have to have the vision of the patient experience before you can get the patient flow. And then going from that vision to the practice of it really does take a lot of time. And so I think the biggest pitfall people have is not making that time. And I think you don't understand that when you first come out, right? Like you're not really very busy. Usually when you first come out as a surgeon, right? You don't have the uh, people that a want to see you or b the follow-ups. And I think that time you're just sitting there, you really could be making those connections with those other people and just think about, and, and being younger, it is a little different. Maybe you haven't seen as much or experienced it yourself as to how patient flow can be so bad. Uh, but as we age, we see that. So perhaps this podcast can help those younger people know that really patient experience as a patient, right? We've had kids is sometimes really, really hard to navigate that system, right? Like you need a breast MRI if you have breast cancer, not every patient, but a fair number. And, you know, here's the number to call to set up your breast MRI. No, here, we made your breast MRI appointment. Here it is. This is when you'll get it done. Oh, are you claustrophobic? You might need these meds, right? So if you ever had to navigate the system for yourself or a family member, you know, firsthand, but my goal is to show the younger people coming out who have been healthy and probably haven't had to navigate the system that this is how you can do it for the patient so they don't have to worry about it. And maybe I'm acutely aware um, because these are cancer patients or maybe um, the one thing that did help me understand this um, and this vision, right? Like we hear about multidisciplinary care and we hear about these multidisciplinary clinics in um, other facilities, but my son was diagnosed in utero with a lung abnormality. And I got that news on Christmas Eve. And then I got told, oh, you'll get a call in a couple of weeks from Vandy and they'll set you up for these other things. Well, except I was a physician, right? So I didn't have to wait because I called a friend who was a maternal fetal specialist. And they're like, oh, Cincinnati Children's, if you just call this number, they'll get you in and they'll get all your testing done. And I went to Cincinnati Children's Hospital and I was there for a day and a half, but I literally had every test I needed. And I had a complete opinion at the end of that appointment for what was the best recommendation. I thought, wow, 
they made sure I, I mean, like that's a fetal echo, that's a fetal MRI. That's, uh, I mean, so many things that they just set up for me and they pre-certed and they made sure everything was done. And I walked out of there and I thought, oh my gosh, we can do a lot better. We can do better. These people figured it out. We can do better. And so that is probably the turning point for me now in retrospect as to what changed all that. Um, even though I tried to set that up previously, that became like, I'm just going to do this. Mm-hmm. Because women cannot keep taking off work and spending all this money for breast cancer care and trying to get the phone calls back, right? Like there's a message on your cell phone. Oh, your med on appointments at 11 o'clock and your med right on appointments at 1130. Well, you can't do that because you're never going to make those appointments. So if we just set those up for you, you're going to know exactly when everything is and it's not going to conflict with each other. Yeah. And I think that probably, especially the people going to a new job out of place, you know, like at a fellowship or out of residency where a lot of these flows are already established is forgetting the fact that sometimes, you know, you're actually going to go to a place that has none of these things set up. And so probably the biggest shock for people is going to say like, just how much it takes to start up this coordinated uh, practice. And a lot of times too, we'll have our own idea of how it's supposed to go. And the place we're going to has a different idea. And so what advice would you give to people who are trying to navigate making those changes? Um, What are some of the things that work for you? What are some things that absolutely did not? (laughs) Well, force change never works, right? It never worked for us in residency and it won't work when you get out to your staff. Um, I think find your champions in the office which sometimes takes a while, find your champions in your other specialties that then give feedback to their staff that then give feedback to your staff, how happy the patients are and just try to persist with your ideas. If you really believe in them, not in an overarching overlord kind of way, but in a, I really do think this is best for the patient. So let's just give it a shot and keep doing it and keep persisting um, and show the feedback to the staff from their established patients. And then I do feel like they start to turn around, but I do think that takes a year at least minimum. Uh, I really usually say two years. I think it takes two years to really get this program going and to invoke that. Specifically because coming out of residency, you had a selection bias in the patients you saw. You had patients that wanted to come to an academic center that had residents. Not, I mean, some programs are community programs, but in general, most of us finish at academic centers. So those patients have selected out to come to an academic center and or know they're going to have residents. So they know that system is set up to help them navigate the system, right? Like you're coming to a cancer center usually if you're coming to an academic center. You're coming to a memorial, you're coming to an Anderson, you're coming to a Siteman, or just in communities, they have their cancer center, right? So you're coming to a cancer center because that's the care you wanted. Um, If you're going out into private practice and you're not at a cancer center or you're not at an academic institution that has residents, those patients have a different set of thoughts when they're walking into your office. So they may not expect a resident. They well, they probably don't expect a resident and they may expect different care 
than what you're used to when you were the resident seeing the patient first or the fellow seeing the patient first and then the attending comes in. So to set up your program, if you like to model it after an academic center, those patients will be different and expect different things. And sometimes you have to be malleable to adjust your program based on that. Modeling it to the environment you're in is obviously something you have to do. But, um, you know, one thing, one characteristic about you, I think that people um, should know and have the ability to, to model after is that your absolute certainty on the, the patient being the foremost and your absolute certainty that you were, you know, you had the best idea that even though you're getting pushback and even though it was really uncomfortable to provide these changes, you know, I think that your true centeredness and your absolute resolve is what influenced the environment around you. So, you know, a lot of times people get frustrated, like, well, I have to do it myself. And really, I think you don't necessarily have to, but I, you definitely have to have that vision in mind and that, that belief in yourself and belief in the mission. And, you know, eventually expecting that other people around will see to it. Um, and, and I think that's one thing that, you know, you never gave up even when it was uncomfortable. And I think that that's, you know, knowing that nothing has gone wrong if it's uncomfortable, but, you know, having that first four and foremost in your mind, I think was the real power that you had in your environment. I've had multiple people say this about me, and I really do believe it's true. Although it makes people who aren't necessarily on your team yet uncomfortable. They say, has she ever asked you to do something she wouldn't do herself? Mm -hmm. And has she ever asked you to do anything for her or was it for the patient? Right. And those answers are always that I will do it myself. I'll pick up the phone and make that appointment. If I have to, I will stay late for the patient or come in early. Um, and so again, finding a team that is willing to put that patient first and to understand, and it sounds sappy, but it's true. It's really kind of a calling as to what we do in surgery. It takes sometimes a bit, but once you find it, it's crazy how efficient you can become with that system and what quality care you can provide to the patient. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. With COVID, there's so much worry about staffing. There's so much worry about people leaving the healthcare system. And I mean, that's happening everywhere. I mean, it just is. Were people underpaid in healthcare for many years? They were. Did we get away with it for a long time? We did. Right. And we've talked about it before. If you can make the same amount of money stocking shelves at Target at night or checking in breast cancer patients while they're crying and wondering how they're going to be able to pay their copay, what are you going to choose? Right. It, it just is what it is. But A, we have to understand that it's worth paying people the money uh, if they do a great job. And B, you're going to get the people who believe in your vision. It will happen. It will happen because they've had family members that have had a hard time to navigate the system or they themselves personally have had a hard time, but it'll work. It'll work. You just have to, like you said, believe that it's going to work and just with absolute certainty, stick to your guns. If it's the best for the patient, always work out for you. It just yes. does. You know, I think that's such great advice and it's such a, a something that's never been taught. Um, I think a lot of us do this naturally and some of us evolve to it, but I think really knowing that's what the key to success is, is very helpful. And, um, and I can tell you another lesson is, is the ability to delegate things. You know, a lot of times too, especially if you're the one that's providing the vision for it, there's always a tendency to want to do everything yourself. And I have certainly fallen trapped to this too. 
Um, but of course, the downside of this is that if you do everything yourself, you disempower everybody around you. And so therefore, you, you will be the man um, on the island by yourself. A hundred percent. So we have weekly meetings and we all have assigned tasks, right? One MA has a certain thing. Another MA has a certain thing. For example, one MA makes all the Medonc and Radonc appointments. Another MA does all the no-show letters. And then they're assigned to other things like in breast cancer, Oncotype, or making sure the pathology is sent to the primaries. And then there's a nurse that oversees the entire office. And so we sit down weekly at the beginning to go through how that flow is working, make sure everybody's still on the same page, likes it, doesn't like it. Um, and empower your staff to make a change if they see something for the better and let them try, right? And these meetings, you know, take time as well. Um, so not just the planning, but the regular meetings. Um, I think that we oftentimes, you know, dramatically underestimate some of the time that things take and they don't have to be long. I've experienced this too, is that they don't have to be long, but really taking the dedicated time to coordinate with a team is going to empower your whole team. And just like you said, a little work on the front end is going to help a lot, a lot more than you think. Yes. And like you said, empowering the team is, is a very important task teaching them that they can have new ideas and we can do their new ideas too, right? Like it, when you come into a system that has had a tried and true thing, don't always assume that the team was good with that tried and true. They may have wanted change too, and they just didn't want to say it. So when you're first new to a place, I would sit down and say, what do you think works well? What do you not think works well? And what would you like to change? And how can we do that? Because they may have noticed things for change too, but since it's always been done like that, they were afraid to speak up. Absolutely. Um, and I think a lot of times we all just kind of take for granted what we have and that it can't change. And that, and that comes through all levels of the hierarchy. Um, and a lot of times, you know, someone already knows the right answer. Like, you know, like in my last um, clinic, I was doing something. And the, the problem is, is that, you know, we don't really, especially when you come to a new place and you think like, oh my gosh, I'm just like low band on the totem pole, but you're still a doctor. And a lot of times they're going to do whatever you say. Um, and if you don't check in with them to say, is this reasonable? Do you have a better way? You know, cause sometimes they do say, you know, you're asking us to do this, but it's actually really hard. Like, well, it doesn't have to be hard. Tell me an easier way. And really like making sure that we're open to the feedback from other people because we, they may actually have the better way to go, the better clinic flow that'll work. Um, and listening to your folks uh, can be really helpful, but they won't speak up if you don't ask or if they're afraid of you. That is true. But be very wary of the employee that says we can't do it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that's a huge red flag. And that is kind of my elephant. I don't know if you have heard that expression, but like you're whenever I hear that, I'm like, oh, please don't tell me that. Please tell me that right now we're not doing that this way and we may not be able to, but we're going to give it a shot to try something different to make it easier. Right. Make it more efficient. Not I can't. We can't because that that employee is a dangerous employee. Um, I have the luxury of now, like, you know, since being in my private practice, I can basically hire all the people that I want. And I have a great team that works just for me. And I know there are a lot of people in some systems to where there's lots of turnover or you have a shared MA or a shared nurse. Um, and, you know, I have an idea for this too, but what are some of the things you suggest to someone who's in an environment that's kind of like a revolving door or a shared um, thing? How would you Im implement the vision in that case? I was previously an employed physician and we, other offices had a revolving door. Um, we had a pretty stable office. Also, 
because you just explain to them your vision. I, I do think it works the same way. And I think the mistake of big hospital systems or centers or whatever you want to call them is to think the employee is loyal to the system. The employee is usually still loyal to their physician and your vision. And I think I, I was talking to a plastic surgeon the other day who is employed by a huge system in North Carolina that has now bought a Midwest system. And he was talking about, and he's kind of a fairly well-known plastic surgeon in the, in the, in the breast world. And he was talking about how the billboards are actors, the billboards for their hospital systems are actors. And I think the hospital systems really think we're all replaceable, right? Not just the MA, you and me as surgeons. Um, and they will continue to function like that as long as it's still financially rewarding. But what they will eventually figure out is that's not financially rewarding because patients start to figure out if there's physician turnover, if there's MA turnover, then that's really not the place they want to be. And I think most of the time they figure that out. But I think for your private practice and your employee physician, still the employee is loyal to you. And if they're not loyal to the physician, then they should find someplace else to work in that system. And you do it just the same. You stay true to your vision and eventually you get people that are loyal to you. The last position I was at, I was at 11 years. I had the same nurse 10 years. I had MAs for at least four to five years. And three of them that left were because they became RNs. Uh, one left for a managerial position in a different system. And so I had a total of seven MAs my entire time there because, again, they are loyal to the physician. I do believe that. Of course, the better, the more clear you are in your vision, the more you support the patient, the more they see that, the more you empower them, then, of course, why would they leave? Yes. Now, a lot of times with the short staff, um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, sharing of resources and things. And I think that's even more important to kind of create um, like, you know, checklists and protocols and things that are independent of the people that come and go. Uh, because I think that we're certainly in a time now where people are coming and going and we are sharing resources and they're certainly short staffed. Um, and so, you know, it's spending the time, just like we mentioned about, you know, writing these protocols down, having it clear to where, like, if someone's not there that day, the next person can pick up that and, and pick up right from where you started and making these protocols and, and implementations of things independent of the individual person, supporting them as if they're the only person there, but having a protocol in place where they could be gone, they could be on vacation, you can get a new one um, and, and all of your protocols still stay in place. And you know how we always laugh in the OR, like I do it the same way every time and I need these five instruments and blah, 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 right? But care, and that's not always true, but I will say I use about the same eight things every time uh, on purpose because it makes it easier for the OR, right? You're not going to get the same scrub tech every time. You're not going to get the same anesthesia. So you have the same expectations in the OR, right? I want their pressure up. I want them not paralyzed. I want these things in the OR. So just transition that to your office. If you do that breast cancer patient the same way every time and their follow-up the same way every time, right? Like once a year, you're going to get a diagnostic mammogram for the first three years or whatever your protocol is, or never a diagnostic, you convert directly to screening, but whatever your protocol is, it's the same every time. So at my previous position, my staff knew exactly what the patient was going to need and follow up without me even telling them. 
after they'd worked there for a few months because they're like, oh, this is how she does it. So if you are very regulated and protocol driven in how you're going to take care of the patient, then they start to figure that out and it flows. Now, do patients need aberrations from the protocol sometimes? Of course, right? Something, the anatomy is weird in the OR sometimes. So you have to do something different, but in general, 90 to 95% of the patients are going to need the same thing because these are NCC and guidelines for cancer care. So you're going to do it the same way. So I think if you are to your point, very standard in how the patient's going to get the same care every time, no matter their insurance or no matter, then that will help the staff know how that's going to go too. So there's no surprises, there's no instability, and you're not that person that's switching every time. You're like, this is how we're going to do it every time. So I think that's helpful too. Something that helps, um, you know, getting down to some details of clinic flow that may help. Um, a lot of times having the, the paperwork available to patients ahead of time so they're not waiting in the office. And, you know, having these patient handouts um, with information sheets, you know, those, especially when you're at a new job, you have the time to do those things. And there's not much original in this world. You can post and, and request other people's copies of things. And, you know, the more you can give information to the patient, both beforehand and afterwards, um, it's going to, to make your visits shorter. there will be more efficient and more satisfaction because we think that they're understanding stuff and they are truly not catching all of this because it's difficult in a um, significant, significantly stressful environment to get all of that information. So the more you can provide to patients ahead of time and afterwards is definitely the better. So there is that one study from uh, years ago talking about catecholamine release and how it damages your hippocampus for long-term memory. So like cancer patients really only take home about 10% of what you said. So mm -hmm. I think the ability to use handouts, like exactly what kind of cancer they have and, 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 uh, how we're exactly going to do the surgery and how long they're going to be there and all those things. So we all get those patients who come in probably with breast cancer or patients with breast cancer that come in that have this list of questions, right? My goal is that I, and I always say to them, I go, I am happy to answer those questions, but give me a chance to see if I'm not going to answer all those and what we talk about in our meeting first. So we're not answering here or there and your brain's all over the place, but it leads in a flow. So you'll understand why I'm telling you what I'm telling you. So in fact, my nurse used to always say, I can see your face when you get offended, when you see that list of questions, because you're like, I'm going to do that. Give me a shot. I'm going to answer all those questions. And she goes, you have to reel that facial expression in. She goes, because you have to realize that not every doctor does that. She goes, so, so calm that down because my face would be like, right? Like I know those, I know you're going to ask me what type of cancer you have and what grade it is and what stage it is. I'm going to answer that. Give me a shot. Right. Funny. So, but what we have to realize is those patients have never probably encountered a physician that does. And those questions exist online because doctors have not answered them time and time again. So people made those list of questions, right. At thrive.org or breastcancer.org because physicians didn't do it right? We didn't as a society, we didn't as surgeons offer them the option of lumpectomy with radiation therapy or mastectomy, or for example, most recently at the ASBRS about going flat and not having reconstruction. I don't know if you saw that, but that was actually in the New York times too, that women weren't offered the option of no reconstruction. Hmm. 
They weren't offered that. So all those questions and all those articles exist because they really happen, right? I mean, they've happened and that's why they're out there. So it's our job as surgeons to dispel those myths, right? And show them here are all your options and I've written them down for you. And I know you're probably not going to hear this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you all this ton of information today. And it probably is overwhelming. And I understand that. And then you're going to go home and read about it. And then you're going to come back after you see these other doctors that are going to reinforce these questions. And then we're going to talk about what surgery you think you're best suited for. Right. And so that kind of flow and empowering the patient to know that you really are going to tell them everything is very important. I completely agree. And I think the reason a lot of people don't do that, and this is just my opinion, I think they don't do that because it just takes a lot of time. You know, a new breast cancer diagnosis for, for me is an hour. So it was an hour for me previously, but our flow is a little different where we do the biopsy. So mm-hmm. now that discussion takes about 30 minutes because they already know me. Because you've prepped them ahead uh, of time. Yes. And I've prepped them and said, Hey, I really think this probably is going to be a cancer instead of them walking in, not knowing that. Um, so to your point, if you do not do the biopsy, I do think a new breast cancer patient takes an hour. Yeah. And, you know, I see them for the biopsy as well. And, and I do think, you know, just like you're kind of alluding to is that the whole flow of the patient, especially cancer patients starts when you first see them with any complaint, you know, and that flows to the biopsy, which is part of the, the whole cancer, um, discussion and really recognizing the fact that, you know, we may see them at the diagnosis, but the flow started earlier. They're going to come in with whatever experience they had before, if we didn't see them before, or if we do see them before and they have the potential for cancer, the, the cancer flow, the patient, the treatment and how they're going to have an impression of the entire system starts with that. Um, and really, and so typically, you know, for me, I will send someone for a biopsy, but I know that getting the results is a little bit, I tell them exactly when I expect to get the results. And if they don't hear from me to call me and, you know, really just recognizing, giving them some expectations that it's not on them to necessarily find us that we really are caring and directing their care is, is subtle messages It's small, it's easy. And it makes a huge difference to the patient. And I think uh, back to your point about having the paperwork ahead of time and those sort of things, I think a big um, patient satisfier and something that is very underestimated, especially when you first come out, because again, you've often worked in academic clinic settings, is your office space um, of when you come in, the waiting room, is it warm, is it inviting, is the person sitting at your front desk not on their phone? Are they welcoming? Do they make eye contact? Those kind of things really are very key to the patient satisfaction that you do have control over because they're your staff and uh, really set the visit off on the right foot or the wrong foot. And so your front desk person is key to your patient satisfaction. And uh, I have one particular front desk person in the past that was just crazy good. And, um, that is when we won the patient satisfaction award. And I, to the admins gave her all the credit. I was like, when that patient walks in, they know that Cher is going to greet you and welcome you and know everything about you because now most EMRs have patient pictures, right? They know the patient when they walk through the door. And so that is such a big deal. At the same time, uh, the nurse I worked with for 10 years, they loved her. I mean, she was mentioned in a lot of the reviews online. So again, please don't underestimate how much your staff can make or break this. 
uh, because it is a big, big deal to your patient flow. You can have all the handouts in the world. And if you have a staff member that doesn't believe in your system, giving them that handout doesn't fix it. Because when they call for a question, uh, you know, and I've experienced this as well, I have great, great support. And so when they call, they're like, oh, of course, Mrs. Jones, you know, yes, I, I do recognize. No, we're still waiting on this. It's not like a, and you are, and you're calling for what? And I don't know, I'm gonna have to look this up. I mean, it's really the getting the whole buy-in of the system. I think I completely agree with you helps. And don't keep staff just because you need staff. I think that's a very misunderstanding, especially in the system today, because people are like, well, we're going to lose the MA and we won't have an MA and da, da, da. I don't know. Uh, bad staff is definitely worse than no staff. Please, please don't underestimate that as a new physician coming out. If admin's like, well, we have to keep her because she's all we've got, or we have to keep him because we don't have any applicants for that position. Okay. Uh, I'm still okay if they go because it will never help you make the system work for the patient if you don't have everybody on board that wants that too. Yeah. Oh, I completely agree with you. I think the one thing, uh, mistake that we make is that thinking that turnover, something has gone wrong. And a lot of times, and especially with these lower paying jobs, I mean, turnover should be expected. And if we expect it, it's not so jarring. And sometimes it's meant to be, they go to the place where they're meant to be, and we get someone who's going to be a better fit. And having that belief that we can find the right people for the job is really, really helpful. Right. I mean, that's the point about three of my MAs became RNs. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. what you want your MAs to do. So yes. when you lose them because they did a higher level of education while you train them, that's a success for you. Yeah. Or if an MA became an office manager, yes, that's what we want. So just because you lose staff doesn't mean that that's bad. That means that maybe you've empowered a woman to be something better because the majority of women, the majority of MAs are women. They just are. (laughs) Yes. And and, I heard this great phrase that said that you want to train them to where they can go anywhere, but treat them so kindly that they they would want to stay. But of course, you know, if you're catching a rising star, that means they're going to leave and that nothing has gone wrong. Yes. I think that's very, very important. Your point about handouts and organization and those sort of things. Yes. Make the patient experience just like you would want it when you walk through the door, but have staff that wants that too. Right. And if we hold on to these staff and we're so afraid that they're going to go, then, you know, that we could actually inhibit their, their career. But I've had some people where we, you know, treat them so well that they've told all of their friends. And so they may leave, but we've got like five people that they know that they're, you know, cause they want, especially if they believe in your mission. They don't fit there anymore, but they can actually help you find someone who fills that spot too. So it's really just understanding the, that all of these things are meant to change, you know, even in us too, you know, our careers are meant to change and nothing has gone wrong. And um, I think it's where a lot of us uh, struggle is when things change is adapting to change. If instead, if we expect change, that it's not so shocking. (laughs) So my quote to kind of make the point that it is a little laughable, right? Is like, I know nobody likes change. So trust me, let's do it my way. (laughs) You got to make fun of yourself a little bit. I know no one wants to change. Neither do I. So let's do it my way. But you know, to take some levity in the moment, right? I had to change when I came to a new position. Everybody has to. Uh, It is hard, even for the physician, even if you're 
implementing your plan, your plan at St. Louis is not your plan in Chattanooga because you don't have the same patients and you don't have the same staff. So even though you have your plan and you're doing it, quote, your way, it's not going to be the exact same. So you're going to have to change that a little bit too. <laughs> is And sometimes you have to do it their way. Like I've, I've not had a nurse navigator for a breast cancer patients. And I see more breast cancer patients than I did at the largest referral center in the military. Um, and we don't have, and we had three navigators there and I have none here. And it's a little frustrating. I fought that battle for a couple of years realizing that's just not a system where that's gonna work. And so I you know, created a system to where I could have my own, um, my MA acting as a navigator. So really, you know, sometimes you can have it your way and sometimes you have to have it their way. And because the, really the, the thought that came up for me is like, if I push this, they're gonna give me something and I'm not sure I want it. <laughs> I think that's exactly true. Yes, so be careful what you wish for, right? Those are an old adage, but it's true. Yes. It's true. So we don't exactly have a nurse navigator for our breast cancer patients either, but because we are not hospital employed. So the hospitals have navigators, but not really one in the office. Again, you can set up the system to be very efficient for the patient without one. And you've worked around that. Right. And I've worked around that and um, patients still get great care. Yeah, I agree. Because again, it's about the mission. It's about thinking what the patient wants and that our resolve will rub off on everybody else. It's true. It's true. Just live your mission and they will eventually live it too. Perfect. Well, I think there's a great um, place to, to stop. And I think that this is going to offer so much, especially to these new grads who are going out into the world, into these new and different environments and people changing jobs, since that's the season that we're in. I think this is going to be a really great benefit for everyone. So Dr. Snell, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom. Thank you for having me. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye. If you want to hear more about the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.